Since the financial crisis of 2008 and 9, we have seen a huge change in the financial sector and an increase in the rise of distrust of mainstream financial institutions and lenders. Why, you may ask? Once seen too big to fail, ended up failing us because many household financial institutions were in the hands of liquidators, whilst others were rescued by central governments because they were seen too big to fail. Just as we have seen confidence in mainstream financial institutions had shaken, there is also an emergence of a new form of financial model. Very much favoured deregulation, we can call it cryptocurrency or crypto assets to be precise. An asset totally digital in nature had transformed the global landscape. Along with it came new forms of challenges for financial regulators in Britain and many other national governments. I remember giving debt advice to a delivery worker who used his credit card to pay for crypto. But when he can't afford to pay his credit card debts because he lost his investment on crypto, what can he do? Is he gambling with credit card companies' money? Or is the crypto platform provider behaving like a gambling company? Who has the responsibility to monitor or check whether the crypto assets are reliable for consumers in vulnerable situations? Welcome to Debt Talk with me as a Dr. Deb Ripon-Ray. The topic I'm to speak about with my panel members in this episode, and you have guessed it, crypto assets, gambling and debt. To help me navigate today's subject and provide you with tips in this month's episode, I have Ismail Malik, Chief Editor, CEO and Founder of Blockchain Lab, Kathy Wade, Money Guidance Service Manager of Gamcare, a national charity helping with harmful gambling. And finally, Vanessa Northam, Head of Charity Development at StepChange, a national debt advice charity. Let me begin this month's discussion with Ismail, who has extensive knowledge on crypto asset. Ismail, if you had to describe to a novice about crypto, how would you describe such an intangible product? Um, so I would begin by saying a, a crypto asset is an asset that exists only on a digital ledger, and that digital ledger largely in the form of a blockchain. So instead of having a, a physical representation, a note, or like what you'd have, a 10 pound note, or a, 20 pound no or even a 10 10 pence in your pocket that is represented by a unique id code uh, and a cryptographic signature which is held on on a ledger and by and large if it is a decentralized cryptocurrency that will be on a transparent format so ie available for everybody in the world to view as in they can view the public file which dictates hey 
so and so public key has this uh owns for example one bitcoin but the private key which is the key um unique identifier is a string of digits um numbers letters which uniquely represent your asset and in many instances it's referred to as self-sovereign money so that unique identifier as long as it's kept private to yourself only you yourself have complete access to those that asset so when let's say that uh, unique asset that you have if you want to sell it or buy it how would that work in terms of transferring that asset from a to b there is two methods of transferring it one is you can physically hand across that unique identifier um either written down or you can have a what's known as a crypto wallet or a blockchain wallet and and that will you know let you send it much in the way you would be use a traditional banking app and you'd say would like to send one btc and and you'd scan a qr code of somebody either sitting adjacent to you or they could send it over the internet and you'd just press send and it would transfer that across and and that usually takes in on bitcoin it usually takes in the region of 10 minutes for a confirmation and that confirmation will then be permanent and immutable there had been a huge hype around crypto assets why do you think this is the case initially so the hype around crypto assets is largely based around the speculative value so i would buy a bitcoin i don't know some years ago for $100 and then that bitcoin may suddenly shoot up to $1000 and that individuals you know made somewhere in the region of 900% which obviously spreads spreads like wildfire as in sort of you know the much in the sort of social media viral age we live and creates a you know a tsunami of hype so the the hype is is mostly factored around the the fact that these speculative assets can dramatically increase in price and recently we have seen a decline in such a price binance for example is one of the well, one of the i suppose um uh, assets that we can talk about now there had been a rise initially as you pointed out now we are seeing a decline now what would be the impact of such decline in our economy um one who've bought the asset um to use on a on a on maybe just on a transactional basis on a daily basis they may want to send some remittance back um and that's usually cashed out immediately or transferred into a standard bank account and into what's known as fiat cash um then there'll be others who've bought in a tsunami of hype when the price has increased dramatically um speculating that it will go even further and and those will have a, a maybe lost 900% or 500% of the value will need to either hold or if they're not in a position to hold 
sell at a substantial loss. The Financial Conduct Authority, it doesn't necessarily regulate um, the um, crypto, but the money laundering aspect of crypto is so far regulated. What is your take on this? As with any asset class, um, be it gold, be it cash, uh, physical cash, uh, what what digital assets offer is a way to move funds, albeit in a much simpler fashion. So it becomes attractive for those that are seeking to hide their illicit gains. Um, it, it it's from its foundation it's been attractive to you know people seeking to you know move gold um onto a much easier means of holding their wealth um but much like cash uh i don't think the problem will ever disappear as such um it's just another means for criminals to hide their illicit gains um, over time, there is going to be technology and what we call sort of green addresses and black addresses and other forms of tracking such illicit gains and means of sort of fun movement um, that will reduce much like we have done in the cash economy. But um, it, it is just another means for criminals to be able to move money um, somewhat undetected. Ismail, you've traveled, no doubt, um, far and wide, um, being a strong supporter of crypto and crypto assets. Um, what types of people are leading the debate in favor of crypto? So um, largely in the, in the, for, as a technology stack, the means for everybody to have self-sovereignty over their funds and not to go through an intermediary, i.e. a third-party bank or institution, has many advocates and many, many useful use cases. Um, we're increasingly moving into a digital society, so for cash to be digital um, it is an inevitable and a need. So. I would say it's largely been driven by technology advocates that are looking and seeking to see a decentralized, much more owner-managed internet. Now, what's the flip side? What are the negative aspects to such a drive? Um, the flip side is speculation. So, you know, it becomes a speculative asset as opposed to a technology asset that drives efficiency, makes new means of payments available, makes new means of asset ownership, allows for an entirely decentralized economy to exist. Um, but once you have that speculative element where folk don't understand the technology, have no interest in the technology, but are merely joining it for a sort of boom and bust type tulip mania, scenario you start to create financial bubbles i mean so far two nations have formally accepted it um and most recently nigeria i mean what stops other nations from taking part um so two 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 factors 
if you're in a in a country like the UK or London, which has a very very strong financial lobby and a and a, a banking sort of city of London type uh, format, which you know has large political sway, you're not going to want to see a competitor type technology sort of sweep away your your profits and your margins. Um, so there'll be a lot of pushback from that. And then on the other side is you've got countries like India, except, except for example, um, that have really strong capital controls, do not want to see free flow of, of money in and out the economy. Um, and they will see crypto as a potential conduit for the easy movement of money and it may not serve their sort of national interest as they see it. I mean, if you remember, I, I, I made a reference to a debtor who, gave, who I gave advice to and he bought crypto um, with his credit card. Now, in terms of managing crypto and paying crypto with credit card, how would you protect those who are vulnerable? Theoretically, you should not be able to buy crypto with a credit card so that conduit that allowed the purchase of crypto with a credit card should be the party at fault here it should not be a, a and there should not be avenues where you could simply purchase crypto with a credit card because it's equivalent of going into a betting shop with your credit card Speaking of uh, betting, let me get Kathy Wade into the discussion. Um, I'm Kathy um, from Gamcare. You've heard what Ismail had said so far about the native, nature of crypto and, and, of course, him being a vehement supporter of Orbit. What are your initial thoughts on what he had said? Um, yeah, it, it was really interesting to hear what Ismail had to say. Um, and, and just, I suppose it's just really sort of, pointing out the fact that we're not um, necessarily opposed to crypto uh, care, but obviously we're just starting something that we're starting to look at more and more because we're just starting to notice that there's similar traits um, between <clears throat> sort of like uh, financial harm related to cryptocurrency and other gambling. So it's something that we're just looking to do more work on and we're, looking, we're finding that we're getting more inquiries for our helpline, for example. So it's just something that we're looking to do some more work with. In terms of gambling and also, I guess, um, uh, and gambling harm, what sort of behaviours um, do you identify to see whether, pers whether the person is actually um, becoming harmful or, or gambling becomes a harmful to him? Yeah, so it, it really differs from person to person. Um, but the kind of things that we would look at, look out for would be things like um, whether the gambler is able to afford their essential living expenses. Um, so things like food, heating, clothing, that kind of thing. Um, we also look at things like the impact that it might be having on their family and social lives. Um, I think one of, I started working at Gamcare in May of last year. And I think one of the things that I'd not really thought about before is just how secretive gamblers can be very secretive it's a really hidden addiction um it never really I hadn't realized just what a hidden addiction it is so someone um can be gambling without people knowing um for a long time 
um, which isn't the case with things like um, drugs or alcohol. It's usually more obvious if somebody might have an addiction to those, not always, but, but generally. Um, other things that we would look out for are things like um, neglecting family, friends, um, the health, their appearance. Um, quite often they might become very withdrawn, um, perhaps mood swings, that kind of thing. Um, they might also see gambling or investment as a legitimate way to make money. Um, so some of the people that we speak to on the helpline see crypto investment as a part-time job. So they kind of see themselves as professional traders. Um, it can also um, be a sign that things are becoming harmful when the person's looking to chase their losses. Um, and that's the case for, you know, investments like crypto investment and other gambling as well. Um, and quite often they'll see it as the only way out. So again, we talk to people on the helpline who, even though they realise that they've got an addiction, they realise it's harmful because they think it's the only way out, they'll continue to do it, even though they know that it's not necessarily the right thing for them. Um, and just finally, I suppose, other signs to look out for would be things like um, tiredness during the day. So quite often gamblers be awake during the night, um, perhaps preoccupation with their phones um, and just kind of general secretiveness, really. Um, about things, particularly around their finances. In what ways does a person's action impact his or her family? I know you covered it briefly, but how would it actually impact the family as a whole? We at GamCare, we do support anyone who's affected by gambling as well as the gamblers themselves. So we will help affected others. Um, when we're speaking to affected others, we really see the impact that gambling can have, um, can have a huge impact on family and friends. Um, so it could be spouses, partners, children, other family members, friends. Um, things can often have got to a really serious point by the time the affected other becomes aware of the gambling addiction. So as I said, because it's a very hidden addiction, things could have got really bad before they realise that there's a problem. Um, so it could be that their home's at risk. Uh, the gambler might have committed crimes. Um, we hear of gamblers who have stolen from their employers. Um, they might have taken out huge debts, uh, may have committed fraud. We hear where the gambler's taken out debts in the affected other's name. Um, and as well as the financial and practical effects, there's also huge emotional impacts on the relationship. Um, and it's kind of like the realisation that they've been lied to is really hard for the affected other to recover from. And it can take a long time to build that trust back in relationships. Um, we, you know, we do see that it can be achieved, but it's really important that there's transparency, particularly around finances. Um, and the affected other will often find themselves being the one that needs to sort everything out. So they might need to take on resp financial responsibility for the household, be sorting out the financial problems that have happened as a result of the gambler's actions. Um, and for the partner, for them having to take control of the finances, it can feel quite burdens burdensome. Um, and they, you know, they can often have feelings of resentment as well. Now, in terms of, I suppose, support, um, in terms of, I suppose, uh, gambling and changing gambling habits, where does um, GamCare fit in? Um, we run the National Gambling Helpline, which is a 24-hour day, 365-day-a-year service. Um, anyone can call us. Uh, people can also contact us uh, for support through our live chat. Uh, we've got online forums uh, which people can access through our website. Uh, we've also got treatment services in different areas and they provide more in-depth 
counselling and support. Uh, we've got the new money guidance service, which is what I uh, manage, and that provides money guidance to gamblers and affected others. Um, we actually sit within the treatment team. So one of the unique things about our service is that we work really closely with the treatment practitioners. So it's that real holistic approach. So the work, the things we identify through money guidance, we can speak really um, like with the client's permission, we can work with the treatment practitioners to help them to implement it. We've got Game Change, which is an online CBT course that people can access themselves. Um, and we've also got a campaign called Talk Ban Stop. So the idea is that the talking is calling our helpline. Um, Gamban is um, a thing that blocks devices from accessing gambling websites. And then we've got GamStop, which enables people to self-exclude from all gambling apps. Um, and just to say, one of the challenges with crypto investment is that people are not able to self-exclude or block. Um, there's not that facility available. Um, and just in terms of supporting clients who have problems with crypto investment, it really works the same as supporting them with any other gambling behaviours. Um, so we would support them to identify the different harms. Sorry, we'd work with them on their motivation to change their behaviour, to improve the situation. Um, and it's just thinking about time management being really crucial. So it's thinking about... Uh, the gambler like having activities and other things to keep them busy so it's like that preoccupation it helps them in their recovery now we're in a cost of living crisis um from your experience what sort of issues would would you come across during this period or would there be a change in pattern or behavior as a result of financial struggle that many people are facing yeah, so we're, we're really aware of the impact that the rising costs um, could have um, for those who rely on our services. Um, we haven't necessarily seen a significant increase in calls yet, but we are monitoring it more closely through the gambling helpline. And it's also something we're going to be monitoring through the money guidance service. Um, but just the sort of things that we're hearing um, are people who are receiving benefits, uh, gambling to try and make ends meet um, and get extra money to cover their bills. Um, but then, of course, they end up in a worse situation. Um, we're getting a lot of repeat callers who may have previously felt like they'd recovered from gambling, um, but then they've relapsed because of the financial pressures. Um, we've also had callers who are reporting that increasing costs have been a barrier to them repaying their existing debts. And I'm sure Vanessa's probably seeing that at Step Change. Um, our helpline advisors um, here tell callers, uh, say that they see callers who see gambling, as I said earlier, as the only way out of a debt situation or their financial difficulties. Um, yeah, and as I said, you know, even though they know it's a problem, they're continuing to do that. Um, we also speak to quite a lot of callers who um, see gambling as a way out of bad housing situations. So perhaps they're living in an area that's got high crime rates or uh, break-ins. You know, they could have issues. Perhaps they've got had debts from um, illegal money lenders, that kind of thing, and they need to move. But obviously it can be difficult to move with social housing. So they might see gambling, getting that big win and then um, a way out. Um, and I suppose it's important to note that it's not only people who are receiving benefits who are struggling. We speak to a lot of people who um, are working, but they don't have the money to travel to work. Um, it could be because they've gambled money away. Um, but yeah, they've and then they've lost everything. Um, and I suppose the last thing to say is that we um, 
the helpline advisors say that they're seeing a really increase in the number of safeguarding cases. So we regularly speak, unfortunately, we regularly speak to people who are feeling suicidal um, or, or, you know, having suicidal thoughts or have already attempted suicide. But we also speak to a lot of clients who literally have no money for food. Um, you know, they've got no food, no money or food, and they might not have eaten for a few days. And obviously our worry is that with the rising prices and interest rates and everything, it's just going to make it hard and put more pressure on people. Going back to an example that I gave previously, where an individual used his credit card to pay for crypto, what message do you give on that precise issue? From Yeah, regarding credit cards. So yeah, people um, shouldn't be able to gamble using their credit cards. It shouldn't be allowed. But what we're aware of is that sometimes people will find loopholes. So they might do a balance transfer, cash transfers, so that they've got money in their bank. Um, I suppose the message is for anyone who's relying on credit because of their gambling is to get a debt advice as soon as possible. Organisations like Step Change and other debt providers um, follow the Talk Band Stop campaign. People can find out more that, about that on our website, as I mentioned earlier. And just really reaching out for support. So call the National Gambling Helpline. Um, look to see if there's local treatment services. They can access those through the Gambling Helpline as well. Um, and then they can get access to the money guidance service through that as well. Thank you. Let me now move move to uh, Vanessa from Step Change. So far, Vanessa, you've heard what um, Ismail said about uh, crypto and also what Cathy had said. What is your take on it so far? Um, so I think, as, as Cathy's alluded to, there's a lot of similarities to, to what Cathy and the support that GamCare provides to people that, that we support with, with gambling problems. People come to Step Change with all sorts of reasons that uh, the problem debt. Um, um, at the moment, um, and, and listening to what Ish, Ish was saying, we, we're not seeing uh, our client base come to us with any sort of concerning signs around uh, crypto or none that uh, are being shared shared with us. We ask people, you know, the reason that they've come to step change and, and it could be, you know, it could be gambling, it could be redundancy, bereavement, health, etc. Um, but as, as it stands at the moment, we've not seen anything that's of a material sort of nature when it comes to crypto. Um, I think in terms of supporting people who maybe have got into debt in order to, to, to buy crypto or have bought crypto and then, um, you know, they've lost money. We would support them in exactly the same way that we would support anybody, really. You know, we're an organisation similar to your background and obviously with what Cathy's doing, you know, we, we don't judge anybody. We're, we're here to support and we're, we're basically looking to understand their situation and find a way forward. See lots of people coming to us with addictions. Those can be, you know, alcohol, drugs, shopping even. And, you know, if somebody has a problem associated with crypto, as I say, We'll support them in exactly the same way. So in terms of identifying those traits, how, how does that work? Um, we, we At the start of any debt advice journey, whether it's face-to-face, on the phone or online, there's a lot of questions to really establish the current situation. And as part of that, we we encourage um, clients, as we call them, to tell us, you know, what's brought them to the problem of debt, but also if they have any additional needs or, or vulnerabilities, as, as, as we tend to call them. 
we we get a high disclosure rate um around 51% of people that use our services have an additional vulnerability which uh, as as we're talking you know that could be mental health it could be addiction um and we'd include sort of gambling within that that's quite a significant um sort of disclosure rate um if you compare that to sort of what people are prepared to tell their bank or, or it's it's significantly higher at that stage, similar to Kathy, if that includes, you know, a disclosure that they're having suicidal thoughts, then we have additional support and we'd look at providing a, a more dedicated telephony-based service or indeed making sure that they, they're aware of the services of people like Samaritans, Mind, specifically in gambling cases, would be actively signposting um, to GAM care as well. Do you think the debt advice sector has a strong voice uh, when it comes to uh, regulation of the gambling sector? So, uh, yes, yes, I do think the, the 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 debt advice sector does have have a strong voice. I think we've um, been very clear on removing the harm. I think it's it's removing harm. So, you know, our vision of step changes. We believe in a you know society free from problem debt. However, that's been generated, and I think we we lobby uh, very hard and work with organisations such as the FCA, GAMCare, energy regulators to demonstrate through our research and our insights garnered from our clients of what those harms are, and, and actively use data and insight to make policymakers and, and regulators aware. So, so yes, I mean when it comes to crypto, um, I I think this conversation is is really sort of giving me some insights into sort of saying you know what is our position um what you know um we we have to be careful as a debt debt charity we can't we can't sort of lobby on absolutely every potential aspect of 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 monetary harm but it but it's certainly something that i think um we need to be sort of honing in on i know that the institute of money advisors produced uh, a paper uh, some years ago and, and other organizations you know are are pretty clear but ultimately our role is to help people you know almost at the tail end of the process uh, you know if if unfortunately you know their their gamble uh, through crypto has not paid off then we can support them in in getting out of that 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 problem debt situation. I mean, even amongst us, where we're dealing with crisis management rather than crisis prevention, is 100%. there enough sufficient data to show that more investment needs to be taking place on crisis prevention? Yes. Yeah, uh, 100%. So I think the pandemic um, has really highlighted that, you know, problem debt or financial instability can happen to anyone at any time. And I'm sure I'm sure in hindsight, some people say, well, we could have predicted a global pandemic at any one time. Yeah, okay, we probably could. But the ramifications and the impact on people's finances and the varying different ways that governments across the world supported. And, you know, I think furlough definitely helped millions of people, whether that's, you know, consumers or small businesses owners and the like. I think we're now coming out of a pandemic and I think early intervention and the use of data to predict the route that somebody potentially is going down um, has never been more important. So traditionally, not traditionally, but by and large, 
most people end up in debt advice because there's been a sort of succession of issues and then a big trigger. So people might have sort of been using credit monthly to just keep the lifestyle or, you know, just thinking, well, it's okay because we'll get to that stage and then we'll pay it off. And then they find themselves, you know, indebted and actually suddenly those minimum repayments are unattainable. What what we're seeing now with the cost of living crisis is the outgoings through no fault of anybody's um, are just increasing. So we know about energy. This year, I think 30% of people are going to find that their fixed rate mortgage is going to go to go up. We're seeing inflation like we haven't seen in in in, in a number of years, probably for a generation uh, or two. We're also seeing things like car finance payments increase food so you suddenly start to find a scenario where people are just having to say crikey you know we used to have you know a thousand pounds after the bills had gone out suddenly that's 500 where's that gap going to be built is that going to be credit is that going to be belt tightening is that going to be increasing income you know that you know and people will behave in a variety of different ways some people are going to find themselves in a situation where maybe a year down the line that they suddenly find themselves that there hasn't been a, a big bang. There's just been a series. It's almost like you boil the frog. When you put a pan of, you know, a frog into a pan of boiling water, it jumps out immediately and it, it goes, I can't do that. I think we're in the scenario where the pan of boiling, the pan of water is just lukewarm and bit by bit, month by month, that temperature is increasing. And suddenly that frog has found that it's suddenly in boiling water, but it didn't see it. How do you get people to acknowledge that, understand that, recognise it and know what help is available? Because they're probably not missing many payments, but they're probably doing a number of things that are potentially impacting their their, uh, health and well-being, potentially then turning to gambling and looking for alternative sources of income, which may they think be the key. And then that then starts to become a vicious circle. So it's... The use of data to spot these signs as early as possible is absolutely critical. And I'm having conversation after conversation after conversation to say, how do we do it? How do organisers do it? How do banks do it? And, and what what's the help? Because actually, you know, you said earlier, debt advice tends to be at the point of crisis. Actually, how do we get people to see in a year's time you might be in a crisis, but here's a bunch of stuff that you could do. That's a really difficult conversation to have. Um, some people might benefit from it. Some people might be absolutely, you know, disgusted with a with a bank that's trying to, to do that for them and, you know, may raise complaints and may leave that organisation. So there's a very fine line. But I think it's, you know, organisations that crack this will, you know, there'll be a win win. There'll be a win for the consumer because they feel supported, able to make changes and understand their situation and a win for organisations because they don't end up defaulting, but also a societal win because then they're not having families breaking down, turning to, to gambling and, and other issues. You heard about what Cathy said when it comes to trying to reach out to those individuals through innovative means. Now, looking at it, uh, I, I guess, from the debt advice sector's um, lens on, um, to assist individual, in what way can we target specific individuals and what yeah. innovative tools can we use to do just that? Yeah, so I think the, the data exists. 
Um, I think so, you know, if you were to sort of look at, you know, whether that's bureau data uh, through the credit bureaus or, or, or the banks, the data exists, the number one data exists. The mechanisms in which to do it can be fairly innocuous. And actually, we've seen some of that happen. I myself have received only two communications in the last six months from um, my the, the banks that I um, that I have that they're just dropped me an email to say, look, you know, there's a cost of living crisis. There's a bunch of stuff we can help with, you know, stay in touch. Now, I'd like to think that wasn't based on insight and data. I think that was more of a generic, we're here for you. But those types of communications need to increase in frequency. Um, I think it's really important to demonstrate that there's help available. One of the things, and Cathy, you're nodding, one of the things that we hear time and time again is people feel isolated and didn't know that there was help. And they're so frightened of telling any organisation that they need help or they think they're going to need help. So that's absolutely crucial. Um, I think it actually starts all the way uh, at the beginning of a journey, you know, a bit a bit like, you know, sort of some health warnings, you know, to sort of say, you know, you've got this credit card. Here's how to activate it. All great. But if anything changes or if you ever have any problems, you know, we're always here. Keep talking to us. That that doesn't exist as, as as from the research that I've done it that I've seen. I think that may well come in a in a regulatory, you know, in in the same way that you buy a packet of cigarettes. I don't buy a packet of cigarettes. In the past, it was a small health warning, and now, I mean, it's horrendous. I don't know what it looks like now, but I just wonder: are we going to go down that route to maintain engagement? Say, look, life happens, things change. Please maintain engagement. That to me is critical. So I think. The innovative ways that it can be done, it it, it it needs to be normalized. I think that's the innovation here. We need to normalize the messaging around help and support and maintaining dialogue with any provider. Um, that's going to be really difficult to crack. And I hope things like consumer duty, which coming into financial services, I think that can play a key role into it um, because the earlier, as with anything, the earlier that, you know, you're told about the help, you know, the less sort of punitive the, the impacts are, whether that's health, whether that's addiction, whether that's money, anything. The earlier interventions, you know, the more powerful. So in your experience, in what way consumer duty will make a, a radical change when it comes um, to financial services? Yeah, so I, I don't know that it's it's radical, but I think it's more about the 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 thinking and the the design of products across the entire life cycle. So you know, if if you were to look at sort of standard communications from an energy company or a bank sort of ten years ago, um, you probably wouldn't see an awful lot of signposting um, outside of a collections environment. You just wouldn't. Yeah, if you now go and look at any website, and it, it, you know that whether that's a bank and your company or whatever, you know, if you're struggling or you've got money worries, it surfaces it right there. And I think that that consumer duty in the design of the products and the awareness, I think that that's got to play a really because you you've got to prevent that detriment. You've got to design, you know, you've got to. So how that will manifest, it, you know, really interested to see what happens post the end of July and what that looks like. Thank you, um, 
Vanessa. I mean, it was wonderful actually to hear a breadth of experience and knowledge from my panelists for sure. To listeners, um, if you are interested in, in doing a specific subject on that talk, you can get in touch with me. Um, also, you can find me on Twitter, your Dr. Debt. You can also get in touch with me on my website, yourdoctordebt.com, uh, and you can find this talk on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. The subject so far we've discussed uh, with my panelists has been crypto assets, gambling, and debt. To give a constructive twist to the subject, and let me now um, ask my panelists uh, what tips they would give to my listeners when it comes to dealing with the cost of living crisis, um, crypto gambling and debt. And let me start with Ismail, a founder of Crypto Lab. What are your top tips, Ismail? My top tip would be to, um, if you've used your spending app or as of late, for example, NetWest and the others, they offer up a round up your purchase. So, you know, you spend 10 pounds, 20 pence, and they'll round it up to 11 pounds. I, I would, my top tip would be to take that round up and, and it, it all gets put in a segregated account. Um, it does it on the NatWest app. Um, and I'm sure the other banks also do it. I would then take that and I would invest that in some sort of compound investment strategy which um which will build you up a nice safety net when it's needed lovely let me ask the same question to kathy thanks Ripon. yeah i just um so just wanted to just to add i just wanted to add that gam care just following on from what Vanessa had said at gam care we do work um, with the credit debt and gambling industries just to look at how we can prevent gambling related financial harm as well so I just wanted to add that in but yeah I suppose my my sort of top tips really is, is around if anyone is concerned about their own gambling or someone else's gambling or how they're investing in cryptocurrency or other investments please reach out for help um, if you're worried about your debts get debt advice as soon as possible you won't be judged as Vanessa said um, and helps there and then, yeah, just to finally say that if you're worried about gambling or your finances, call GamCare's National Gambling Helpline. Um, just to repeat, the number is 0808802133. You can get details on the website. Um, the free help's available um, and we're here for you 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. As Vanessa said, you know, same as at Step Change, won't be judged. So, yeah, please just reach out help is available so do reach out for it thank you kathy from gam care and finally vanessa northam from step change thanks Rippon. so i think um it very much depends on where you think you're at with your finances in terms of my tips i think that has to be the first tip so where, where am i you know we're in a cost of living crisis no one is immune do i need to do a bit of sort of belt tightening do I need to possibly maybe put a jumper on instead of putting heating on? Do I need to switch my supermarket? Do I probably need to look at some of those subscriptions? Um, and, and do I need to just do a bit of an MOT on my own bank accounts? You know, have I checked my direct debits recently? And just really understand, you know, how the cost of living crisis has impacted you. So again, back to that example, you used to have a thousand pounds maybe left over after payday once all the direct debits had gone out. What, what does that now look like? And are you living 
to that thousand pounds, or actually should you be living to say seven hundred pounds? And what what have you been doing? And and have you started to increase your credit card usage? So I think that's the first tip, really, is is how's the cost of living crisis impacted you? Secondly, what's your utilization of credit? So how are you using credit? And, and be open and honest with yourself. Is is credit something that you're using for luxuries, or actually are you living um, on credit? And are you increasingly turning to a credit card two weeks after payday because there's no money left? If you are, then I think at this at that stage you need to come and have a look at getting some some debt advice, some budgeting advice, and start to look at a full financial health check to say, right. I probably now need to make some more stringent changes, sticking to a budget, planning a weekly food check, maybe looking at whether I'm entitled to additional benefits um, and, and do a health check. So that's group two. And then group three, I think we'll, uh, sort of section three would be actually you're, you are you're almost coming to the end of your credit utilisation because you're starting to become maxed out you're probably not missing any payments but you are very close to reaching your credit limits you you absolutely need to come talk to an organization such as step change or go online so 70 percent of people who come to step change just use our online tools we have so many tools you can start with our 60 second debt check which does exactly what it says on the tin and you can then start to complete debt advice at the end of that process, you will get options and you'll get solutions. I can't stress that enough. Please, please, please don't think there are no options. Um, there is always something. And again, as I said earlier, um, the earlier you do it, um, the better. So my overall tip is be honest with yourself and take a bit of a, a new year health check and understand, is it a bit of belt tightening? Is it some material changes? Or do you need to get full debt advice? I would like to thank all my panellists for giving their precious time to speak on Debt Talk podcast on crypto assets, gambling and debt. Um, for my next episode uh, in February, I'm going to be speaking about council tax, debt and enforcement during the cost of living crisis. Um, once again, thank you for listening to Debt Talk podcast with me, your Dr. Debt, Ripon Ray.